This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. Today, my guest is Dr. Edward Biner. Dr. Biner is an internal medicine physician and professor of medicine at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University. He also serves as the founding director of Cooper Medical School's Center for Humanism. From 1987 until 2006, Dr. Viner was the chief of medicine at Cooper and was instrumental in the creation of its medical school. Prior to joining Cooper, Dr. Viner was an attending physician at Pennsylvania Hospital for 22 years. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so first, uh, as, as I mentioned in your intro there, you, you, have, you definitely have an interest in, in humanistic medicine. So can you tell our listeners about your, your background and how you got interested in humanism? Well, my, my background, uh, as far as the humanism is concerned, uh, I'd like to think I was always a humanistic person. My mom and dad taught me those values and, and I was used to being taken on trips around the area where we lived when I was a youngster and delivering baskets of food to anybody that got sick or a birthday cake on somebody's special birthday, that kind of thing. So there was a, there was a sense of, I was brought up to respect uh, uh, people and to uh, learn how to interact with them relatively young. But the, the real issue of, of my interest in humanism as a subject um, came when I was a, a patient. Uh, I was 34 when I went to the doctor and a big liver was found and uh, it led to surgery for what was thought to be a hepatoma, a malignant tumor of the liver. And I had crisis after crisis postoperatively and ended up being reoperated to drain an infection. I had sepsis, bloodstream infection, and uh, I was... Uh, Five, five weeks on a respirator uh, because of the pulmonary complications that sepsis can produce. It's called ARDS, Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. So I was very, very sick and uh, likely to die and knew that. And I uh, was in the hospital in the end four months and uh, I, I, got a, I t- learned a lot of things. I, I learned... I decided I could tell whether a a care provider at whatever level was uh, really cared about me or not in about 60 seconds. They might as well have worn a sign on their chest that says, come unto me, I want to take care of you. And the other other group says, I don't want to get too close. Uh, I don't want to get my hands dirty. I'm here because I have to have a job and make a living. And, I think I was probably nearly always right in my immediate judgment. Uh, so what was that? What, what makes one person, I think I'm talking about uh, the humanism of a person. What, what makes one person able to demonstrate humanism and another not? So I've been very interested in this for a long time. And then more recently, of course, we are 
deluged with journal articles and TV shows and whatever, uh, dealing with the fact that doctors are unhappy, doctors are depressed, doctors are uh, burning out, uh, they don't have resilience, uh, uh, they don't get joy from the workplace, and uh, woe is me. And well, at any rate, uh, what's, what's happened to medicine? And what's happened to medicine, I think, is summed up in one word. It's become commercialized. And uh, Dwight Eisenhower worried about the industrial medical uh, military com uh, complex after he was, uh, when he was president. And, uh, now we're worrying about the um, industrial medical uh, complex. And we have medicines being run by, by big businesses. Uh, it's delivered by big business in the hospital. Hospitals are big business and most medical care is being in, in cities at least is being delivered that way. And we have huge uh, pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies uh, that are dictating policy uh, one way or another. Uh, they're setting the tone and they're, they're, they're requiring huge amounts of documentation before they'll pay the doctors or the hospital. And this means the electronic record and all the woes that that has brought to physicians. So docs are unhappy not getting joy from the workplace. And uh, we're, we're trying to mitigate this tsunami uh, in our little Center for Humanism at Cooper. So I can tell you more about the specifics of that as we go. Yeah, that was great. You gave me a lot to, to obviously unpack there, um, kind of talking a lot about your, your work, uh, really just to make healthcare more human. And um, I guess I want to, for a second, focus in maybe on the, the compassion piece. Uh, recently, I had the pleasure of reading uh, Compassionomics by your colleague, Stephen Traziak and uh, Dr. Anthony Mazzarelli. And um, in this book, the, the authors discuss the, the lack of compassion present in healthcare and present scientific evidence for, for why compassion matters. Uh, so can you describe to our listeners uh, the, the ongoing compassion crisis in medicine? Well, doctors, it starts very early. Uh, medical students come to their first day of medical school with compassion in their hearts and with the uh, desire to take good care of needy human beings and be sensitive to their needs and their, their personalities and whatever. And, and then that gets dissipated and uh, this has been studied. Uh, and, and the devil's in the third year when the students get to the, to the hospital uh, and start interacting on the floors with the, with the teams and, and with the patients, they get less rather than more empathetic. You'd think when they saw sick people or actually working with them that, that this empathy would magnify, not shrivel, but it, it, it shrivels. And why, why is that? And uh, we think it's the hidden curriculum that does this. The hidden curriculum is all the, all the stuff that students learn by osmosis, by watching, by listening, that's not part of the 
dictated and fixed curriculum, but it's it's how the how the person above them, uh, be it the staff physician or the resident, uh, how does that person demonstrate what uh, humanism in in his in his approach to care? A, a frown at the wrong place, a snide comment, uh, a an insulting comment of his patients, a big fat slob, or I mean, uh, all of the, that may be true, but you don't, you know, that we have to respect people's dignity. And that, that gets in the heat of the excitement in the middle of the night when the patients are crashing and the docs are up, uh, really trying to keep afloat. Uh, emotion comes out, the students hear this, uh, see it and whatever, and it influences them a great deal. So we're, that's one of the major, major problems with, with compassion. Another problem is that we just have lost the art of communication. You know, what I was saying before about being able to tell in 60 seconds uh, whether a person was uh, gonna be a good caregiver it's it's connecting. We, we have to teach our students and, and young physicians how to connect with patients when they first meet them. And it's no different than you meet a new kid next door that moves in and, you know, you connect. And, and uh, that, that is both a natural skill and it's also teachable. So we, we are trying to teach doctors how to communicate better and, and uh, to express their humanistic feelings better so that it shows. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of uh, sort of, the, like you said, the hidden curriculum and, and, and some other trends in, in healthcare pushed you to ultimately create uh, or, or, or to, to help found Cooper Medical School as well as the Center for Humanism. So can you talk more um, kind of like what you're trying to do uh, in, in both the medical school and that specific program? Um, to kind of make uh, healthcare more humanistic? Yeah, well, the, basically our mission is to foster humanistic care. And to do that, we have to teach communication uh, skills. We have to help the physician feel that he's part of, he or she is part of the team, that they're not isolated. The, the, electron, the, uh, the electronic health record, EHR, is isolating. Uh, doctors don't talk to each other anymore. They communicate through the uh, um, computer. And uh, this makes one feel isolated and uh, that they're in this alone and there's no camaraderie. We're trying to work on that. We're developing a program called the Commensality Program. Commensality refer, is a term that describes a meeting of people to over a meal to discuss issues of the day. And we're starting going to kick this off very shortly. Uh, Mayo Clinic originated this idea. It wasn't our own. But uh, we th uh, think it's good and we're going to try it and we're going to study. Everything we do in our center would interject is to be studied. We have two PhDs that we've hired and we're trying to 
to scientifically determine whether or not we're doing any good and also determine what inner, what uh, action on our part might help solve a problem. So, uh, so that, that's an example of the kind of thing we're doing. Yeah, uh, you're, you're talking about the electronic uh, medical record. Um, certainly resonates in my own work in healthcare where you feel like, you know, there's, there's so much documentation, there's so much uh, related to billing uh, that's done on the computer that you kind of scratch your head and wonder, you know, what, what, what's, the, what's the point of all this, right? It's ultimately to provide quality care to a patient. Um, you know, let me interject because you raised an important word there. Uh, you talked about the billing and the rec medical record. The reason the docs resent the medical record in large part is because it's been designed to help expedite collection of uh, billing at the maximum level and collecting at the maximum level. It's documentation, documentation, documentation. So they're up at uh, midnight still working on the day's charting, so to speak, uh, because uh, so the hospital can collect more money. Since it's not their own practice, they have no personal, uh, you know, they don't have skin in the game of collecting more money and they would ultimately obviously if the hospital went broke they wouldn't be able to get paid but on a day-to-day -day basis this doesn't mean much to the docs and they they they've they're tired in the evening when a lot of this uh, work gets done and uh, they're angry about this so uh we're trying to figure out how to improve that that's that's a tough one though but we have to compensate for it the doctors have to have uh interaction they have to talk to each other they have to talk to the nurses uh it's it's got to be it's got to be human just in the daily interaction with each other we're trying to to help that we have programs and all of these issues uh, ongoing that certainly resonates with, with some other points I've heard. It's, it just seems like in general, right, that uh, billing at one point was used to kind of provide better care, but now the care is sort of being being changed to accommodate the billing, right? Uh, so, excuse me to interrupt, but the medical record ought to be a wonderful thing. Right. The medical exactly. record, it's, first of all, it's typed. There's no issue of the doctor's lousy handwriting and not being <laughs> able to read it. I mean, it, 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 it's, a, it's a record that's permanent. It can be sent all over the world uh, at a moment's uh, need. And, and uh, so there's a lot of good about it, but uh, it, it interferes with the human interaction. And, and, and when the doc's looking at his typewriter or the keyboard, uh, somehow that's much more interfering than used to be. We used to write by hand, but you were look, you were writing and looking at the patient. And it wasn't, he wasn't separated. He's, he, they were working together on this patient and doctor to get this history down and so on. And, and, and just in so many ways, it's, in, it's in, interfered with, with uh, the good side of uh, what we ought to be doing. And I talked to your colleague, uh, Dr. Uh, Elizabeth Tricheo, a little bit about this, but I think with the billing too, right? You're, there, there's no longer this sense of, as much a sense of ambiguity in medicine. You, you kind of, a diagnosis needs to fit into a, a billable code, right? And you can't yeah. sort of uh, have leeway in terms of, of thinking uh, a little more 
maybe artistically or, or humanistically about a diagnosis? You can't, you, can't, uh, you can't order a lab test without providing a code number that justifies doing that test. Right. So you can't, you can't order something because you suspect something. You, uh, you can't use it until you've proven it. It's a vicious circle uh, right. just to order, uh, to order the, uh, the, the documentation for a laboratory test. Right, right, right. Yeah, this conversation also calls to mind uh, a discussion I had with a physician uh, maybe a year or two ago. She said the, the worst two things to happen in healthcare in recent years was one being the electronic health record. We've kind of touched on some of those issues, but the other being sort of limitations that have been put on residency hours. And I've, I've heard you talk briefly about this, but can you kind of paint a picture for our listeners? You know, what are some of the limitations on, on residency hours and, and kind of had those come to be and, and perhaps how they're, they're working out in healthcare? Well, all this began with a young woman named Libby Zion. And Libby Zion came into the hospital uh, quite acutely ill and died. And died because the resident didn't get certain details of her situation uh, and medications that she was on and so forth. And uh, the patient died. Libby's father was a writer, I think, for the New York Times, and uh, he sued the hospital, and he, he pressed that this happened because the house staff was too tired, and the tired doctor makes mistakes, and, and we're working 80 or more hours a week, and how can you be alert, and whatever. So he didn't blame the individual, he blamed the, the system and the concept. And this led to uh, huge changes in, in the way we train residents. Resident can only be in the hospital sleeping, even if the, the, the hours he sleeps when he's on call in the hospital count, he can't be, he or she can't be in the hospital more than 80 hours a week. And at that point, they got to leave. So they're told six o'clock, you have to leave in the middle of your very sick patients, a crucial moment, perhaps. And somebody else comes in and you pass, you do a handoff, pass the baton and lots lost in that. So, uh, and, and, and that inhibits doctors sense of the you know, we want to be there. We need to be there. The patient needs us. Uh, but that all is uh, over, overcome by this rule that they can't be in the hospital more than so many hours. And that has also cost hospitals huge amounts of money because faculty have to be hired to work all the hours that house staff used to be mm. relied on to cover. And so it's probably a major now, obviously, when I was, you know, every, every doctor had, my age has a war story. You know, we worked every other night. And you literally came to work at six or seven in the morning on Monday morning, and you didn't go home till seven or eight uh, Tuesday night. And then you were up Wednesday morning at six o'clock again. And every other weekend and, and every other holiday and it was uh did that for a year then we moved to the, the residence we were on every third night 
Now people are on for the most part every fourth night and it's much more civilized. But there's a lot of lost opportunity. You, know, you, learn, you learn so much in a hospital at night when you're alone to handle the acute problems um, and you, you get challenged and it's, it's, it's good for resilience building and it's good for, for confidence and uh, that you can handle that. And that's, that's gone. Yeah, I want to connect this discussion to, to burnout. My initial rebuttal to kind of like why these residency rules might be important was that, oh, it would reduce burnout. But the more I've kind of learned about it, I've, you know, talked to some other physicians and uh, one person expressed that they felt that, you know, residents were less burnout when they're working more hours. So do you, how do you kind of, uh, in your own head, work out that connection between burnout and, and residency hours? Well, burn, burnout is, you know, if you're exhausted you, uh, night after night after night, you're going to burn out on that basis. But burnout can also occur on an emotional basis. And uh, I don't know that there's, a, a, I mean, the, the hours worked are important, but I don't know that they're so specifically important to, to, uh, to burn out a lot of other things that are causing burnout. I, I must tell you that I, I was burned out. Uh, I'd left Cooper, I left Pennsylvania Hospital to go to Cooper because I realized I was working, I was working 50 hours a week as a general internist and 50 hours a week as a hematologist oncologist. I was tired. I was, and I started to be short with patients and I was, I was horrified with some of the things that came out of my mouth during that period. I mean, I, I, I'm usually, a, a, I think, a, a sensitive, a supportive, kind person. And I, you know, I was not that for about six months and to the point that my wonderful nurse practitioner quit she and I know that it was she never told me until years later but I knew then that it was because she wasn't working for the same advisor she had been for the past five years so I recognize but this is a very important piece of what I want to say today students in medicine house officers young faculty you know, young staff, doctors, they have a role in this. We can't just say that this is the hospital and the medical school's responsibility to fix all this. The, the, the individual has to help fix it. I was smart enough that I followed the advice of intelligent senior doctors that were important in my life. And they always said, you gotta prepare yourself for your next step. What are you gonna do? If you get burned out or you just plain out don't want to do what you're doing here for after 20, 25 years, uh, how, what are you, what's the next chapter? And so I think young physicians need to uh, invest in their futures. They need to, they need to learn something, have a special project, have something that's going to help them with the next step. When I got burned out, and, and the real burnout comes when you feel trapped. If you have something else in your pocket that you know you can do, you don't feel trapped. 
So my wife used to ask me, we were sitting on the beach and uh, instead of enjoying myself or reading the mystery book, um, I'm, I'm, writing, I'm writing a paper. Well, why are you doing that? I said, because I want to keep my options open. And so I wrote enough papers and I, I did a little research and uh, I, I always, always have had a project. Now my project is the Humanism Center, but I, it was the hospice. Uh, after I got out of the hospital, I started the first hospice in this part of the country, uh, hospice program at Pennsylvania Hospital. And so I, 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 was, I was ready to, I knew I would want to be a chief of medicine at some, some hospital someday. That was my long-term concept. And so I made myself uh, uh, able to get such a job. I made myself qualified to get such a job. And when I, well, I got three calls in a week at one point, would I look at a job in the hospital uh, as chief of medicine, Cooper being uh, one of them? I said, you know, this is a sign. I was 50 years old and I was tired out and now is the time. And I was, I looked at six jobs. I got offered four of them. I was very surprised because uh, I wasn't a classic academician at that point. But so today a student, a resident needs and a young faculty person, that's where they really, you, as a young faculty person, you got to start having, and the institution has to give you a little time to do some project on your own that you're interested in that can lead to, uh, whether it's a leadership position or a teaching position or whatever, uh, get yourself prepared to the for the next step and i've been able to do that all of my life and and uh following max scarf and sid zubrow's advice to me when i was a young young uh first or second year, year in practice doctor and these wise older people kept telling me this yeah, I want to I want to uh, take this uh, now talk about some just some broader uh, trends in healthcare and, and some things that are going on. You mentioned the, the hospice program you started. So uh, can you kind of just discuss the, the goals of hospice care and what what good end of life care looks like? Well, end of life care is an important topic because of it. And it's important for we physicians, because think about it, every we are going to ultimately take care of Every patient that we have until we die uh, is going to die. Every patient that dies before us is going to be our responsibility to help them do it. And so you really, whatever you practice, you don't have to be an oncologist to be in. Your patient's going to, going to get sick and, and have end stage illness of some kind and die. And that's the process that doctors need to learn how to handle, they need to learn how to talk to people, uh, be supportive, to be honest with them, answer their questions honestly, uh, help them heal old wounds if they've been a spouse uh, estranged from a, a brother or a parent for years and they're dying, you know, that's a time for you to help them make, uh, you know, make nice again and uh, lots of things that enter into end of life care maintaining the patient's physical comfort emotional support uh teaching family how to handle it and helping the family with their emotional issues and challenges and so that's a very 
very important part of being a humanistic physician is knowing how to do that. Now, you know, there's no perfect way, but if you if you're comfortable to be interacting with the folks on an honest basis, as I said, you're gonna you're gonna handle this well. We never used to tell people they had cancer. And it was bizarre uh, how how people found out. They found out because they saw it on their charter. They found out because somebody uh, slipped up and said something that either told them right out or gave them reason to be concerned there was, there was cancer. Uh, so that, uh, again, honesty is a very important thing. And once you get over the hard initial knock that comes when you learn about your diagnosis. If you know it and your doctor's honest with you and whatever, you can have a relationship that works for the rest of the patient's time. Do you feel like our, our healthcare system as it currently exists kind of just um, often pushes too aggressively for a lot of treatments and uh, kind of just almost is a little too driven by the fear of death and that we need to kind of you know reassess our, our approach in that sense? Yes, well, that's, that's right. That's part of why honesty is so important. Instead of, instead of well, we had a situation in my, at Pennsylvania Hospital in our oncology department. We, we had a training program, a residence, a fellowship in hematology oncology. And one of our doctors' patients always wanted another consultation. They always want... And my patients never wanted another consultation. Well, what I said to him one day, well, why do you think this is? What, what is the difference? And the difference was that he never was honest with his patients about that this was end-stage disease and that they were we needed to work on accepting that. So they were always clutching at straws and he was always sending them to Sloan Kettering or MD Anderson for consultation. And, Poor souls were traipsing around the country sick as hell and uh, looking for some magic that wasn't existent. And uh, so being honest and supportive and, and dealing with the emotion is, is, the, is very important. So we, we can bring this full circle back to our uh, one of our earlier discussions. You mentioned that the commercialization of healthcare um, you, you said the uh, medical industrial complex, right? So can, can you kind of describe what that is more to our listeners and, and kind of potentially changes that can be made to, to help uh, improve that, that way, that, that the way healthcare is now? Well, uh, that's a real tough challenge how to undo that. Um, I mean, I think hospitals and doctors have to try to resist some of the some of the control that the, that these big industries pharmaceutical the pharmaceutical industry and the insurance industry are setting policies in our hospitals and there that's not good and uh, again undoing it is going to be I think not possible but we can compensate for it and fight back a little and uh, we'll, we'll see what the next few years brings on that. Yeah, I, th I think I've, I've, I've sort of had these discussions with, you know, 
people who are more on the uh, administrative side. And it, it sort of just always come down to, well, you know, the, the institution needs to stay economically viable. You know, somebody's got to pay. And that's how you kind of, you know, push to the side a lot of these other things. Um, so can you talk about maybe your relationships with some of the, you know, administrative financial people and how you can kind of meet some middle ground to keep the financial no, stability? We're very fortunate at Cooper because we have a very enlightened leadership. Uh, we have two co-presidents, one of whom is a physician, who was my student at one point, uh, Dr. Mazzarelli. Dr. Mazzarelli is very, very supportive of our efforts to try to make this better. And, uh, and I, I, I think physician executives really know better than lay executives what what uh, where the rubber hits the road here in this arena and uh, we're fortunate to have him he's also he's an emergency room physician he has his law degree and he has a, a master's degree in, in uh, medical ethics so he's a man for all seasons in medicine and and we're lucky to have him. Um, so he, he, we're working well with, with our administration towards the goals that our humanism center is trying to achieve. If we, if we think now like more outward, right? You, we've talked a lot about kind of what's going on within the hospital, but as I understand Cooper Medical School, it's located in Camden, traditionally a, a you know community with a lot of poverty and crime. How can a healthcare system kind of you know, go outside of the hospital doors and really make an impact in the community? Well, I'm so pleased that you brought that up because we we're very proud of something. Uh, I'm going to backtrack to the beginning. As you know, I was quite involved with the creation of the school. And I sat with our chiefs. We had a committee of chiefs of departments that were uh, preparing the, you know, the, the groundwork for getting permission to, to try for a school and then work together to create uh, uh, nuts and bolts, a curriculum and all the things. hoops you have to jump through. And the first meeting of this committee of chiefs of which I was chair, I said, we have to figure out early on what we want to become known for. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what do we want? people image to be of our medical school. And I got the usual response as well, we want to be a great research center and this and that. And I said, well, you know, that costs a fortune and it takes years and years to gain credibility in that arena. Uh, let's, let's try to create a school with a soul. And what did I mean by that? Well, again, it was the that we would have a, a, a safe and comfortable milieu, educational milieu for our students. We would emphasize collaboration and not uh, competition. Uh, and that they would have, a, we tried to teach them how to be humanistic physicians. And we would have a relationship with our community. I mean, Camden is a poor community. Yeah, or there are many poor people that live there and uh, the, the current proper term is underserved, not poor. But at any rate, uh, I think you know what I'm talking about here. And, and these people 
need help. And uh, so we developed, I didn't do this part, because, uh, but a wonderful woman named Jocelyn Mitchell Williams uh, created a community outreach program that uh, two years ago in our eighth year only of existence, we won a national prize from the uh, uh, academic medical leadership, the AAMC and the LCMA uh, for the best community engagement program, the best community outreach program in all of the country. As all the, all the medical schools and all the big teaching hospitals are eligible for this. So we, we have, our students give huge number of hours over their four years of non-medical time to the people in the community. And they have all kinds of, of things. They have ranges from street medicine group to uh, teaching kids uh, in grade school after school to uh, teach them in the library, uh, how to helping uh, seniors in their last year of high school to write their college application uh, essays that they have to, that we all had to write. And uh, so the, all kinds of services that makes the students really feel like they know these folks and to, that they're doing something good gives them pride and gives them joy in the workplace. And you know, the end, the end goal in all of this is to have joy in the workplace. And uh, so uh, I'm glad you asked that. Yeah, I think it's, uh, from, from what I've gathered, it seems like the medical school is doing amazing things in the community. So looking forward to hearing more about uh, the great things that are going on. We, we also have a, a student student-run clinic. And if you're very poor, if you can't get Medicaid, if you're an undocumented but sick person, who's going to take care of you? And uh, we created this clinic right from the beginning. Students start seeing patients in the first, after about a month of their first year, they start going to their own clinic and they're very well supervised, obviously. And, uh, but they have a sense of, uh, you know, that they're feel like they're doctors and uh, that's good. And um, it's a very nice program. The hospital has been very supportive uh, so that they, they pay for tests and other things that the people need. And we have some private philanthropic money to buy vaccines uh, for all these folks. And uh, so it's a very, very nice thing for the community and for our students. We've certainly hit a, a lot of things in this discussion, so I want to wrap it up by by just considering, you know, if you were if you were to change one thing, right? If you if you if there was one thing that you could do to make healthcare more human, uh, what would it be? That everyone learns how to talk to a patient, how to connect and talk with a patient, and uh, develop a, a, as quickly as possible a co close and caring relationship. With that, uh, it's time for a lightning round, a series of fast-paced questions that tell us more about you. Um, so I know you're, you're a, a Philly guy. I'm, cu I'm curious to know if you have a favorite spot for, for a cheesesteak in Philly. 
not really. I, I've always had a weight problem. I say stay away from that kind of food. Okay. I know in the, the Pats and Geno's debate, I'm a, I'm a Geno's faithful. I like Geno's better. So I'll, I'll throw that in there for Geno's. Um, I know uh, part of, you know, the curriculum at Cooper is, you know, incorporating some humanities education. So I'm curious to hear what's your, what's your favorite book? My favorite book. Uh, I can't say Harris's medicine uh, book. Uh, I, I read, uh, I love mysteries. I, uh, I, I like history. I read, uh, I've read about many of the presidents of the last hundred years, uh, their biographies and autobiographies and whatever. Um, but I don't have much time to read for my own interest and pleasure, unfortunately. I also have 10 grandchildren. So uh, what time I don't, I, I have for myself, I try to give to them because that's the most special thing of all. Yeah, that leads me into my next question. I know you're your father and grandfather. So do you have a, an activity you really enjoy to do with your family? Well, yeah, we have uh, getting everybody together for a big holiday celebration or we take a week, the last two, three years we've gone for a week, all of us together, go out somewhere for a summer week. And uh, those are real highlights. We, we also like to travel. And, and uh, when I was doctor to the Philadelphia Orchestra, we were, I made 23, I think, trips around the world to, with the orchestra uh, as their doctor. And we were able to take children on those trips. And that was, that was very special, of course. Wow. And I always try to get to my kids' sports games, whatever they were. And uh, so uh, that's another important thing. And so now we start with the grandchildren in that same relationship. What's the best piece of advice you've received? That I received? Yeah. Plan ahead, <laughs> as, as we discussed. And then last thing, uh, we, you know, we talked about uh, a good number of problems in healthcare, but what, what's one thing that's working in healthcare right now? Well, the, the, the technology, the, the ability to study a patient, uh, imaging, catheterizations, all of this is, is, is a marvelous thing. And the development of the new drugs that we have. When I started in medicine, we only had three or four antibiotics as sulfur drugs. We had penicillin. Uh, they both got developed during the Second World War and they came into daily care in the community in the early 50s. I was in medical school from 56 to 60. So we've had a, a, an explosion. I mean, the pharmaceutical companies, I sort of spoke negatively uh, as a group, but you know, in fairness, they have done a fantastic job in creating new drugs. And uh, so between new drugs and new ways to study uh, genetics, for example, genetics used to be, we studied fruit flies when I was a medical student. 1960, uh, 56 to 60. Now we're, you know, we're, we have the 
it's a genetic basis. We understand it for so many diseases and we can prevent its passage on and we can in some cases alternate genes. There, there's all kinds of, I can't give you one thing that's, that's uh, impressive. All of these things are impressive. Uh, Dr. Edward Viner, thanks so much for joining the show. I enjoyed it too. Thank you, John. That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.